Hello and welcome to We've Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've seen The Blue Angel in the original German, Die Blaue Engel. Which is... Wow. Yeah? <laughs> Your pronunciation is... <laughs> What's wrong with so that? So good. No, I'm just praising. Die Blaue Engel. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my best Bavarian. Um, 1930, German. 1929. Uh, oh, okay. Well, um, release date April 30, it says here in Germany. In Germany, okay. Yeah, and December thirty in the US. Right. Okay. So, well, okay, that makes sense. I thought it was. I thought it was twenty nine. What's film What's a year up? between friends? <laughs> well, it's kind of important because you know, I uh, it's a sound film. Yeah. You know, and I was going to uh, make claims about you know how astonishing it is that so early in the sound period. Uh, you know, you you get musical numbers like this, and you know, so well integrated. But of course, you know, the difference between nineteen twenty nine and nineteen thirty in that period is quite significant. I it's like yawning chasm because things were developing so quickly. Exactly. It's a half a comedy, half a drama, sort of tragic thing. It's very tragic. Mm. Yeah. Um, what do you want to sort of explain? Okay. Well, it's it's about uh, Professor Rat. Uh, R A H T, <laughs> who uh, you know, who teaches in a high school or in a college, whose students poke fun at him, and he realizes that they're going to cabarets at night, and he's very stiff and moralistic and innocent, really, and so he goes, he goes to kind of catch them in the act, and in doing so, falls in love with uh, Lola Lola, who is the star of. You know, what is seen here to be is a kind of a louche, burlesque type of show where kind of the women there are just, you know, on display and selling their favors on the side. Uh, and the professor is so innocent that he falls in love with her, marries him, and in doing so, loses his job, his social position, his career, and ends up a clown. <laughs> yeah, uh, the club is called The Blue Angel, where the title of the film comes from. His, his surname is actually Rath. R A T H. Well, that's pronounced right. And and the students put a U N in front of it, which means garbage. So they're calling him Professor Garbage. Yes, they call him Garbage all right. the time. Actually, all those scenes at the beginning with the students, I thought were kind of marvels of you know how how nasty and mean students can be. Mm. You know. Um, you experienced anything like that? No. Well, I mean, not to my face. I'm sure <laughs> you know, kind of behind my back. Uh, uh, you know, almost certainly. You should have seen the pictures we used to draw of you. <laughs> oh, don't tell me about <laughs> it. I don't want to know. <laughs> um, it, he is extremely innocent and more, and it is a kind of it's a very compelling combination of innocence and moralism, as yeah. you say. And uh, and when he in the first couple of scenes where he goes to the club to try and catch his students, he ends up sort of behind the scenes, and Lola is sort of all over him she knows what's going on she knows not all over him in that way but like she knows sort of what the situation is and she, she knows, knows that he's out score, of place exactly and he doesn't uh, though actually I mean one of the extraordinary things about this film is how impactful the presentation of Marlena Dietrich still is right so you first see her in the postcards you know and that incredible historic you know, iconic, canonical image of, you know, first the students and then the professor blowing up her skirt. I mean, mm. you know, that is one of the images of cinema. Uh, 
and then kind of to see her, right? You know, and she's so bold in the film, right? And she's so insolent and and at ease, right? You know, so I mean, I, 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 there's that, there's a bit where you know she's bringing up her underwear, and she kind of you know grabs her crotch like a man just to you know to put her underwear at ease. <laughs> but it's still kind of I've never seen anything like it, you know, before or since this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her ease with her own body and, uh, and her lack of casual. Cow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know what you mean. And um, and the and the 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 knowledge that she has about the power. Yes. That it gives her. Yes. Yeah. You know when like when he goes under the desk because he dropped all the cigarettes and it's, and it's just him and her legs and she makes some comments about. Are you coming up? <laughs> send me a postcard. I think yeah. she says. <laughs> and and the, but the film also it's the film making use of that. So it's the film that composes it as him down there and just her legs but her legs kind of say everything you see a lot of that you see a lot of her um with her with her legs up on a chair she's pulling her stockings up things like that and her legs are kind of um they're this like the central sort of they're the focus of, of the scene there's a scene where she goes upstairs to her room uh and she she just lingers at the top of the stairs so you, again you just see her legs at the top yeah. of the frame and she drops her knickers and drops them on him yes and it's sort of it, it, it's like it's like her legs are her character at that point I think the film also captures very much a sense of like, you know, uh, palpable kind of sexual desire, you know, on uh, uh, not only on, uh, well, more on the part of the students than in fact on the part of the professor. Mm. Yeah, but it's kind of palpable how arousing and enticing and yeah, it's like moths to a flame, like the song goes, right? Um, but what I found most interesting about the film this time well, many, many things, actually. It's truly a, a great film. Um, you know, one of the all-time greats. Um, but it struck me that the film neither judges uh, uh, Unrat nor Lola Lola. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she is the way that she is. And you see her also kind of being, I don't know, quite wifey and maternal and, yeah, you know, mm. along with cheating on him or yeah like yeah yeah but um kind of i don't think the film judges her she is the way that she is and he is the way that he is you know and they mm. probably should never have met but yeah yeah but there's nothing wrong with the way that she is and actually kind of there's a lot appealing in the way that she is in terms of the film's presentation yeah i think that's true do you think she's an honest person um It's a, it's, that's, that's a good question, but it's a, it's a difficult one to answer. Yeah. I mean, I had this whole conversation about a friend. So I was talking with a friend about another friend, and we were going on about how charming he is. He's an extraordinarily charming person. Right? He always makes people good, and he always makes people feel better for having seen him and so on. Mm. And yet, kind of, my friend was saying, well, but there's something deceitful about that, right? Because, you know, to charm is really kind of you know, to seduce people, to get them to do things that they don't necessarily want, to make them feel, yeah, kind yeah. of, you're putting on an act and a face and, you know, you're you're making yourself into something they will like. That's part of charming. And there's a kind of... It's a, like salesmanship. Yeah, there's a kind of dishonesty about that. Mm. So that's a difficult question to answer. She's charming. She's seductive, right? You mm. know, she she makes him feel good. And the most important now, you know, is that dishonest... You know, well, in a way, it, it has to be because 
you also see that she's with other men. But on the other hand, they've been together for five years, right? And, you know... Yeah, well, the question it gives me is, why does she marry him? Because he's a professor. Yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of the answer I had. It's a status... Yeah, well, but the, but that but that then suggests that she is using him more than I think it comes across. That suggests that she is just using him for social status. I'm not really sure that's the case. Well, I mean, I think this is a this is what I would call a late Weimar film. Yeah, and I think you know, in a country defeated by war with rampant inflation, mm. no food, blah blah blah, kind of, um, you know. I think to want to marry a professor is like not a bad no. thing, right? And I mean, certainly, all his the professor's colleagues all know that he shouldn't, right? Mm. And I think kind of all of her colleagues understand why she should. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, the the irony is that they don't then retire into some small town where he continues to be a professor, but kind of continue with her act where she, you know, because the thing is. One of the telling lines in the film is she supported you for five years, mm. right? I yeah. mean, she could have chucked him out after he, you know, ran out of money. Because there's that line he says, you know, until I go, but you know, my last cent, I won't sell these postcards. And then you cut and you see him selling postcards. Yeah. So he clearly ran out of money very quickly, right? And yeah, and, and that thing at the end when he <clears throat> when they make him the clown, there's a line about the first time you have to earn some money and you decide you don't want to something yes. like that. Um, so, so so she has been supporting him this whole time. That's right. Um, so, um, so anyway, the film makes both of them understandable, yeah, and interesting. Yeah. Um, actually, I was very surprised this time, you know, because I always thought that um, oh god, now what's what's this the actor's name? Emil Jannings. Emil Jannings was such an old ham, right? And I've seen him in lots of films now, and then you also then wonder. Like, are you seeing it in appropriate conditions? Because the thing about his performance here is that it is a bit florid, right? You know, but at each time you know what he's thinking and what he's thinking is complex. I think it is really a great performance, right? Mm. Even though it's not an understated one, right? But actually it's a performance that completely works for me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I felt I was with him, you know, at his humiliations it was unbearable right it's and very difficult to watch him as the clown at the end yeah and it's just he's constantly looking off screen left even though he's on stage and he's and he's constantly because uh, she's she's off with this other guy um and he just can't can't pull himself away yeah can't, can't pull his attention away and it renders it really tragic right like you know um i think it's i think it's really beautiful and it's a physical sort of visual degradation as well that's what yes. it, uh, that's what the film depicts is he it, he gives as you said like they don't retire into blah 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 that's not that's it goes the other way he ends up in the business and he is degraded and gives his life up mm. to be humiliated yeah. for love yes you know? I, I i think I, I do totally understand why he marries her yeah i still am left slightly with this question of why she marries him, or at least why she stays with him when his kind of status goes. Well, because he's fond of him, and actually, you know, all of those lines at the beginning mm. are, she can't believe, in a way, how sweet he is. And then, actually, you realise, well, he's a bit of a fool, right? He's not a man of the world. He's been, he's had a sheltered life. So, you know, but, I mean, she can't believe. Well, see, I, it's funny, I took those lines when she was saying, you're so sweet. I took those as part of her knowing the score 
and kind of understanding sort of what he wanted to hear or just kind of slightly playing him? Well, I mean... I get the feeling that both things are going on. Mm. You know, so she's used to playing men, right? You know, but men who come with money to fuck you, you know, don't bring you flowers, yeah, right? True. And they don't propose marriage, you know? So I think there's a combination of, yes, she knows the score, but she hasn't heard this song before, really, you know? And so I think she is kind of charmed by that. And I'm sure a life of respectability, because there's that bit where... He, he brings the, the ring and she just can't stop laughing. The very idea that mm. anyone would want to marry her, right? There's a line that she, she has as well early on about how it's a long time since something. It's a, it's, it, and it's re- in response to him being very sweet. Mm. forget exactly what the line was, but it's a long time since someone bought me flowers or a long time since something. Remember? Yeah, anyway, yeah. I understand why she marries him. Um, and, you know, particularly if you look at kind of you know, the social structures of the time, or a time even possibly slightly before that, um, you know, it is kind of like a leap up the class structures, really. Mm. Um, plus, you know, kind of, I suppose, the expectation of, of money and security and whatever. Like, the thing is, that in the film, he gives all of that up. But, you know, kind of, um, her attraction to him is purely about those things. It cannot be physical, right? So... Uh, well, that's very judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about the film's visuals. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that von Sternberg, von Sternberg is considered really a master of is, you know, his framings, his compositions, his lighting, his mise-en-scene, you know. Um, and I thought they were like, I mean, I don't know. I don't have all of his films in mind at the moment. But just seeing this film now, it strikes me how great all of those elements are in this film. Like, so I can't say they're, they're greater than The Scarlet Empress or, you know, Morocco or whatever, but they're certainly great, you know. There's the, there's the one uh, repeated shot that uh, very much sticks uh, in your mind, I think, which is the camera tracking back through the empty classroom. Yes. Which happens basically at the end of the first half, then at the end of the film. Yes. Um and I think I think it's the only track that the film uses. Apart from that, it's pans and tripod shots and things. I think I think out. so. Um, so so you know that last camera movement is beautiful, uh, but actually that's not what drew my eye most. What drew my eye most was the compositions. You know, so you you often have like Marlene Dietrich on stage and there's a bird hanging, you know, and just kind of you know the way that she's positioned in front of the camera. There's a lot of use of mirrors throughout, mm. right? Kind of beautiful use of mirrors, yeah, that kind of constantly break up the frame. Um, there's, you know, those remnants, I, I guess, of German Expressionism, because when he's walking down the streets to find the Blue Angel Club at the beginning, it's almost like all the houses are yes. bent into each other and all the shadows and, and so on. I thought that was, you know, incredibly beautiful. The use of gauze... Right, so at the end, when Professor Unrad goes on stage, he comes through gauze. So you know everything in the background is almost kind of out of focus, moving, right? Mm-hmm. And he's uh, in sharp focus. And there's a scene where Malena Dietrich dresses that also uses the same kind of gauze, right? Um, the the constant use at the very beginning of the film, you know, where things are planted for you, so. The image of Lola Lola, which, you know, they had an incredible opening shot where there's an old woman, you know, who washes 
who, there's a poster of Lola Lola, and then she throws water on it, right, and then begins washing it. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's kind of an incredible opening image. And then you see the posters of Lola Lola throughout, right, in her dressing room on stage, like she's ever present, you know, as he is trying to find his students and so like, yeah, you know, like uh, that image of her with her with her hands straddling her waist and open legged, right, with a very skimpy top, right? I mean, you know, that that image circulates throughout almost all of the first half of the film and you can see how he's enveloped by her, obsessed by her. Even when he's not yet conscious of her, she's there, right? Yeah. So I thought, you know, all of those aspects of the mise en scène were just like, you know, mind blowingly fantastic. Very good. Did you notice anything? Did anything? Um, yeah, uh, I, mean, well, I, I must say the, the the shot that I noticed the most um, was was that um, tracking shot that I mentioned, but also the the um, her legs, as I mentioned, and I, and it may be it's partially the compositions that make use of her legs and like I say yes. put them in those places and sort of make them level with him and that sort of thing I think but I think it's you know the fact that her legs she has got these beautiful legs that are on display all the time and kind of the the um, you know backstage is her domain yes. I mean it's not like she she also has them out on stage as well but like backstage she's completely in control and her sort of her skimpiness of, of her clothes and her openness with her body is completely in contrast with him. I mean, he goes out with like seven layers on. Yes. You know, um, so you can see they're kind of like they're they're sort of firing ice. And it's a, it's a, it's a shock to him and surprising and uh, uh, to sort of surprising to be in that world. He is so out of place, mm. and you know the, the, those those kind of cutaways to him, uh, sort of looking away and then looking back and looking away very nervously. Cut back to her taking whatever item of clothing off and kind of looking up at him with this yes. knowing glance. I love that back and forth. I mean, and she's always ready for action because, you know, the skirts that she wears, like, you know, kind of one of them is a skimpy dirndl type thing. But, you know, the back is tied to her waist, i.e. so she's showing her, her panties. And the other one, which is a, you know, a Marie Antoinette type dress, the front is fine, but the back is open for business, right? So, you know, kind of all of that is kind of played you know through throughout uh the film as well um and of course i think we mustn't forget to mention the songs really because you know kind of they're all classic uh friedrich hollander songs uh you know falling in love again and uh beware of the blonde whatever uh um beware of the blonde whatever a classic well it's beware of the blonde women or something really um, but we just, you know, we heard it in German just now, so I can't quite remember. But anyway, the songs help tell the story. Like, they're completely those, integrated, you know, they're, you hear them throughout. Those charming, alarming blonde women. That's right. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that struck me, I mean, you know, I've always known that Cabaret was highly influenced by this film. You know, there's that famous uh, last song where Malena Dietrich straddles the chair right mm. you know and kind of and then you have Liza Minnelli kind of doing her number on the chair uh, in the Kit Kat Club but what I hadn't quite registered until now how all the Kit Kat Club scenes what happens on stage 
uh, is influenced by the Blue Angel, right? So, you know, in the Blue Angel, you have, you know, a bear. In uh, 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 Cabaret, you have a monkey. You know, the women drinking beer and being lined up like that, right? And kind of mm. each getting up to their number and then sometimes dancing together. All of that, you know, the whole makeup of the stage is kind of, you know, taken from this film in ways that are very, very interesting. I was also struck by just people's bodies. So, you know, this is a film in which being fat is a good thing, right? It means you're prosperous, you mm. have enough to eat, you're doing well in business, right? Unlike now, which is like the opposite. Uh, and also the women's bodies on stage, right? Like, you know, some of them are like really fat, right? Uh, and also like uh, they don't have one shape. Some of them, you know, have, uh, you know, very uh, small breasts. and. You know, some of them are more full-figured, or but they're completely different bodies to what we're used to seeing now as objects of desire, right? Because these women with these bodies are all on stage, mm. yeah, to be up, to be desired, right? So, although I think it does still make a joke on the fat woman at the start, uh, you, you see, uh, I forget exactly, but you see the men's reactions first, and they're kind of staring. Cut to it's a head and shoulder shot of this woman who's much larger than the others. And I think that is making a joke on that. Okay, but um, it's a relative but, thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, none of the women uh, in on stage, including Marlena Dietrich, you know, would now be considered, like, thin, you know? And, no, no. And in I, fact, I, Marlena Dietrich, when she made her next film in Hollywood, had a completely different shape. You know, she'd lost 30 pounds or mm. something, you know, and the cheekbones came out. And, you know, and actually that was part of... Jo von Sternberg's either she had to lose, you know, that weight, right? Because in Hollywood you had to be thinner than it was acceptable in Germany. So Yeah, and it made me think of Hustlers actually. Oh but, really? Well you know what I mean? The dance yeah, yeah, scene yeah, yeah, yeah. the dance scene that, that introduces J Lo's character. Yes. And um and how different Yes. Um, I mean, in some respects, not that different. I mean, one of the things that has, I suppose, changed about the ideal woman's body in the last sort of ten or fifteen years is is getting much bigger in some places. Yes. Um kind of J Lo and Beyonce. Uh, yes. Sort of big asses and thighs. Yes. Um, which you know wouldn't have been the case in like the nineties when it was more sort of Kate Moss or you know yes. the incredibly thin figures. So in some respects, um, there is some similarity there. But it still struck me as sort of this. Th I mean, the world obviously struck me as kind of similar in some ways. And there is mm. this idea of of um, sort of hustling men to some degree. Um, but obviously, the sweetness is very different. Yes. Um, and actually, yeah. I think you know. It's a good comparison that you're bringing up, but I also think the comparison plays up, you know, how much greater the Blue Angel is, because the Blue Angel is harsher and grittier, you know, mm. like it kind of, uh, you know, again, just the Marlena Dietrich stance, you know, her use of her body, right? Like, yeah, there's a kind of, um, you know, uh, um, I mean, there are things that you don't see Jennifer Lopez do. Jennifer Lopez dances that dance, and she's made to seem, like, glamorous and agile and beautiful, you know, and this thing. You don't have her scratching her crotch, you know, <laughs> and kind of, you know, making sure that her, you know, her underwear are, are in position for yeah. the act. Like, there's a kind of a harshness to that, right? But also a kind of, an, you know, an insolence. And I imagine also kind of, you know, people found it immensely erotic. I mean, you know, kind of Marlena Dietrich... 
was an erotic symbol for that generation at least right and it's very much kind of due to this film yeah and, mm. and you can completely understand why you know yeah um, yeah um you were saying that the film has a kind of even-handedness in not judging the characters for who they are yes but it but we did still say it it has this kind of overall tragic yes. bent to it and Emil Yanning's character uh, the professor does lose things. He loses his lifestyle. He loses, he loses the state. Of, loses everything for love. Yes. And I would say it's more love than lust. You know, it's, uh, he, he obviously he, he, he does um, lust for Lola. Yeah. But I think I, 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 the kind of overbearing thing you get from actually how much he loves her and falls for her. Well, there are two things, right? Because he's clearly a man who can't distinguish between lust and love. Mm. At the be- you know, he's too pent up and old fashioned and you know, I don't know, Calvinist or whatever, <laughs> right? That he, he can't make those distinctions. I mean, for him, to lust like that is to love. Yeah. You know, um, but then you do see, you know, that something develops, though, you know, in the end, he tries to strangle her. Um, you know, so, so, but I also think that what makes it, tra- you don't need to blame anybody. In fact, the, the tragedy of it depends on not blaming people because in a way this is his fate he can't help himself yeah he can't help what he's done right mm. uh, and he didn't you know so there's this thing of you know both desire but also not knowing any better and being unsophisticated and kind of you know this is your fate <laughs> so I don't think you need to you need to blame him or not blame him in order to appreciate the tragedy of it no um but do you think there is an association the film makes, a kind of classic association between um, drink, sex, clubbing, and sort of moral degradation? Uh, I I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, well, yes and no. Yes, if you are that kind of person, hmm. right? No in itself, yeah? So, for example, you know, the students continue to be students, and... You know, the other mm. professors continue to be professors. Like, you know, it's actually his inability to tell lust from love that causes the tragedy. So do you think that we... Do you think that the audience needs to... Um, i trying to think how to phrase it. Um, do you think... Do you, so you know, do you think that the tragedy doesn't depend on that kind of association? The tragedy more depends on... on the professor sort of not knowing himself or not knowing the difference and that sort of thing? Um, I think the tragedy depends on him being helpless. Mm. You know, on, I mean, he loses everything, you know, because, you know, of love, um, you know, and of, of loving the wrong person, really. Um, so, and there's a romantic thing about that as well. Yeah. Mm. Like, you know, he hasn't lost everything because he's killed someone. You know, he's lost everything for love. Yeah. A very kind of German <laughs> kind of... <you> know, <laughs> has a, a romantic dimension, really. You know, to die of love. Um, very romantic, the Germans, famously. Well, you know, the whole German <laughs> romanticism kind of yeah. revolves around ideas like that. So, so you know, on the one hand, it's tragic. On the other hand, there's a romance about it. You've given mm. your all, you know, for love. It's, um, the, the, the couple of references to uh, Englishness... Um, struck me I suppose they would but yeah so right at the start um, uh, in that lesson they're talking about Hamlet and um, 
uh, Julius Caesar. Um, and there's this thing about... There was some reference to a kind of English kind of sweetness at one point, or something like that. It just struck me that the film had some seemed to have some slight idea of Englishness as romantic. Weird. Well, I mean, I think until World War One, you know, I think kind of Germany and you know uh, Britain were almost like twin nations, right? I mean, mm. you know, kind of Queen Victoria's daughter, you know, married the Crown Prince of Germany. Her grandson was the Kaiser, you know, an educated person in the UK at that time would have learned German pro- probably before French, you know, I mean, World War One changed everything, mm. you know, and of course, you know, even before that, I mean, Hanover had been part of, you know, I mean, the kings of England had been kings of Hanover as well for 200 years previously or whatever. So yeah, there are those links, you know, that kind of were ruptured by World War One. Um, but that had been quite powerful until then, yeah. for obvious for historical reasons. Um, you know, Prince Albert, blah blah. So yeah. Um, um, but that, that lesson, that lesson on um, Hamlet focuses on pronouncing the word "the," yes, "the" as opposed to "z." Yes, as, yeah, in a kind of yeah, um, in a sort of stereotypical German pronunciation, yes. um, and. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what sort of occurred to me. Yeah, it's got to be there for for a reason. More. Well, the reason is to show what a bad professor Professor Unrath is. That he just can't teach him properly. He's just insistent. And, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, you see, the child can't do any better. And he's not saying things like, if you place your tongue at the top of, you know, the roof of yeah. your, whatever. He's just, you know, repeating it over and over again and treating the, the child like a fool. Which obviously the can the child can't do any better unless you show him how to do it. So, no, sure, but I mean he could have taught him very badly in like a math lesson or something else. The choice of Hamlet intrigued me. Um, um so I, yeah, but I don't know. Um, well, I suppose in a film like this, it would have its reasons. Uh, so you know, you're probably right, but nothing comes to mind. No, not not to me either. But. Um, so anyway, um. I think it's the film that made Marlene Dietrich a star. Uh, it was certainly cemented by her even greater success uh, in Morocco uh, with Gary Cooper, also by von Sternberg. It's one of the classic cycle of films because Marlene Dietrich, when she went to Hollywood, she made all of her first films uh, with um, von Sternberg. Um, Shanghai Express, uh, Morocco, uh, the Scarlet Empress. I'm forgetting, you know, something. Um, uh, her von Sternberg collaborations: Morocco, uh, Dishonored. Of course, Dishonored's fantastic. Shanghai Express, Blonde Venus. Blonde Venus is fantastic. That's that's where she wears the gorilla outfit. Um, the Devil is a Woman. And the Devil is a Woman is uh, the one set in Spain, and and that was Dietrich's own favorite. Um, so, you know, a whole series of classic films, one after the other after the other, you know, that kind of um, create this astonishing kind of imagery, you know, all beautifully lit and all kind of with, you know, the potency of Dietrich's presence, uh, which I think really hasn't been repeated in cinema since. See it. It was very, it was very good. And lovely to see it on a nice big screen. Yes. Yeah, the film should be. Yeah, and a beautiful print as well, actually. 
the light shimmered. Um, so, um, anything else? Was it not digital? The, I'm sure it was the the. the uh, I'm sure it was a digital print, but projection. the projectionist talked about a print because you know they had to reset the screen for the print. They were saying, right? So uh, who was saying that? I didn't. Was the the projectionist? All right. Yeah. I didn't hear anyone. A customer had come in saying the screen wasn't set up right, and uh, the woman behind the bar, you know, mentioned it to the projectionist. So, oh, right. okay. And that was the language that they used. Now, it might be a DCIP print, you know, rather than like a celluloid print. I don't think it was a celluloid print myself, but I think you now call those things a print, don't you? I suppose so. Um, never really occurred. I, I mean, I, I suppose I would always associate the word print with celluloid. Ah. Um, yes. But you know, but P- probably yes. I don't think it was celluloid. No, nor do I. Um, but it looked very nice. It looked beautiful. So um, you know, highly recommend to see it. It really is striking to see it on a big screen. One of the things I just want to mention uh, is it made me think of the differences between what you see now and the cinema of this period, and particularly in von Sternberg's hands, because even when you have close-ups of people or two shots or medium shots, right? This, the image is populated, right? So now you get like this relatively sparse imagery. If it's a close-up, there's a person in it, mm. right? Whereas, you know, when there's a close-up in von Sterberg, you're still seeing the gauze in the background, posters, sometimes even like two or three people kind of in the background. Mm. You know, when you see scenes with more people, you're often seeing like 20 people, right? Kind of in the frame, right? I mean, you know, you really can tell that it's been designed to be seen primarily on a big screen mm. yeah, in a way that even movies now, right? So if you think, for example, the last one we saw, which uh, Ad Astra, like, you know, it's almost like in terms of the um, compositions, they could have been done for television. It is just Brad Pitt's face, right? So, you know, mm. and, and there's nothing else except his eyes or what he's feeling. Like, you know, in this one, you know, when you think of kind of, um, you know, Marlena Dietrich, kind of, you're seeing everything that's around her, her dressing room, you know, all the objects kind of lying around, and they're all significant, you know. Mm. Um, well, the other one we saw, actually, the day after Ad Astra is The Farewell, which I don't think it's similarly true of that. Yes, so, exactly. You know, these are very basic compositions, as you said, and no. um, uh, where, you, you know, they fit what the film's doing, but they don't express a great deal, and they don't really fill sort of don't fill the frame with very complex imagery imagery yeah mm. you know uh, so I, I think I always think about animals in old films weirdly rather than the actors as being dead I, I, there's a cat that jumps through the window uh-huh. and if I see that in a film from 1930 I go well that cat's dead uh-huh. as if as if the actors aren't yeah it's <laughs> true it's interesting um <laughs> yeah <laughs> there are so many like so for example one of one of the one of the things that struck me, again, seeing it again this time, is, of course, and you go, duh, why did you get that before? But, you know, when you're, like, all of the early uh, um, scenes backstage, yeah, where Professor Unrat is kind of falling for her, or Professor Rat is falling for her, you know, there's always a clown present, you know, and he's getting, like, mm-hmm. these longing looks and whatever. And, you, you know, by the end of the film, you realize that clown at the beginning, you know, was probably her husband previous to this guy or her lover previous to this guy and he was reduced to that and this guy's reduced to that and the two things rhyme right so you know so so again in terms of what we were saying 
You know, because initially, like, this clown is just a background figure. He's one of four, five, ten, you know, people that you see on stage, backstage, right? Mm. I mean, he does give little glances back. So He leaves an impression more so than others. Exactly. The others are just kind of girls who come back and forth. He's different. Yes. He has a noticeable presence, and he's constantly there, this sad clown figure yeah. that's always just looking on. And you're right, I mean, yeah, I forgot the same very same thing occurred to me by the end when um, uh, Rat is turning to the clown. Yes. You go, oh, this is the same. This yes. must be, you know, what happened with this guy, basically. Yes. And and the guy that, that she is um, cheating on him with at the end, you go, well, he used to be that guy then. Yeah. You know, well, maybe. 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 I don't think so. I mean... Um you know, my feeling was the first, you know, the, the clown at the beginning was her previous lover. And then, of course, you have Professor Unrad becoming like the next clown and being completely humiliated mm-hmm. and doing his cock-a-doodle-do, you know, which takes on this sad irony, you know, when he's completely defeated, you know, and he's, he's made to, to kind of, you know, uh, uh, crow like a, like a, like a, a, a cockerel. Um, so you have like these rhymes that are set into place by things that are seemingly not important at the beginning. It's really kind of great. Yeah, it's definitely a film in two parts. You know, where the things in the first half, mm. as you say, mirror or kind of reflected or um, or kind of recapitulated in some sense in the second. Mm. Um, and that that shot that ends the first half and ends the film, I think, is part of that. And um, which is why and I, that that bit where um, that you mentioned about him doing the cockadoodle do, um, that to me was. That was the hardest thing to watch, actually, in the in the final mm. part of the film, because it's you know I think there there is some association being made between um, sort of the world that he is now in and has been in for five years and um, yeah, uh, yeah moral degradation is too much, but but the, but he loses everything, so mm. it's kind of there and and then he is dehumanized at the end. Yes forced to it's the, it's the it's the owner of the club isn't it who's yeah. kind of going just crow crow will you no and it's, it's the manager of the troupe right, uh, yeah 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 sorry that's what I meant the uh, the, the, the magician fella yeah. Yeah, yeah owner of the troupe um, uh, and he yeah and it's that's really difficult to watch actually but what's really complex and interesting in this film is that when he first crows like a cockerel is on his wedding day mm. yeah and you get the feeling that actually you know for the pent up repressed professor to actually be able to do that is a kind of a release it's something he's never done before and you know the thought of it is like uh, thrills him yeah you know he's now a cockerel at his wedding and then of course it rhymes kind of at the end you know so but in both instances it's something that's foreign to him yeah that's new but weirdly um i don't know if you feel the same way when he does it on his wedding day uh it felt to me as if Everyone around the table was guests were laughing at him rather than with him. It's weirdly how it felt to me. Like he still was not in on something. Oh yeah, well I, I, and, um, I think yeah. Um, well, I think I. That, and at the end, really, it's supposed to get a laugh, but actually, everyone just leaves. It's yeah. kind of, that everyone goes there to see. It's it's all the people. The, everyone goes the there troop, to see him humiliated. The troop returns then, to the town where he came from. So everyone and the, and it's sold as the professor's coming back. And Everyone goes there to see him humiliated and then can't stand seeing him humiliated. Yeah. It ends up being too much. Um, and so I think those two things rhyme because he is slightly out of the know, right? But at the other, on the other hand, it's something, you know, that this professor who smokes too much and reads too much and, 
you know, lives this very limited life, had never expected to experience. So, you know, the thing about his own thrill at it and kind of, you know, people kind of laughing at him because, he, yeah, they're, they're making fun of him doing this. Uh, they're not contradictory. I think they're mm. part of the layers that the film has uh, at each instance. Um, but we really must stop now. Yes. So do see it if you get a chance. It's the 90th anniversary. It does very much feel like a film from another century. Mm. You know, uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it feels like a classic. It feels like a great work, but it does feel like a great work of another time, right? But nonetheless, kind of, you know, still speaks to us. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube mm. to listen to on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.